Uh, open your Bibles to the book of James towards the end of the New Testament after the book of Hebrews. Turn over to James and you might as well get used to me saying that if you're here on Sunday mornings because over the next few months we're going to be studying through this letter. Now, if you're not familiar with James, and that's okay if you're not, be prepared to be challenged because James is a challenging book. But if you have studied James many times in your life, if you've heard Bible classes on James, if you've heard sermons on James, if you're really familiar with James, well, for one, still be prepared to be challenged, but also maybe our approach will be a little different than what you're used to if you study James. We're going to take a theme-by-theme approach rather than a chapter-by-chapter approach. So I've been preparing this sermon, this sermon series, with two other guys over the last few months, Uh, Lamar Avenue Church of Christ in Paris, uh, Chandler Street Church of Christ in Kilgore, we're all going to be preaching James at the same time. So we get to study this together. Knowing this was coming throughout the summer, I would just sit down and I would read through James in one sitting. You know, sometimes we read the Bible, we're like, we'll read this chapter today, this chapter the next day, but if you read the book of James as a whole, and you do that multiple times, sometimes I would listen to it on the Bible app, you'll start to notice that Out of all five chapters, there's really just four or five main themes that James is trying to get across. And then he presents all of them in chapter one, basically, and then in chapters two through five, he's just commentating on on what he has already written about, just in a different way. There's an old preacher saying, preacher style of preaching that goes like this, you tell them what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. Have you ever heard that before? Tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them what you told them. It's like a repetitive way of getting your point across. And in my opinion, that's how James presents this letter. He tells you in chapter 1 what he's going to tell you. And then in chapters 2 through 5, he tells you what he told you. And so we're going to take that theme-by-theme approach. But there is one main overarching theme in the book of James. And we see that one big theme in the first four verses. So I'm going to read James chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 to start us off and see if you notice the two key words that we're going with for this sermon series. Let's read it. Verse 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. All right, I don't know if you you caught it, because this is just my opinion, really. But there's two key words that are the main theme for the entire book of James that we see here, and it comes in verse 3 and verse 4. You see the word faith. The word faith is used, the testing of your faith, the trials that you go through. He's going to come back to this idea of faith multiple times throughout the sermon. And then in verse 4, he uses this word mature. So that's our main theme for the book of James, mature faith. Can you say it with me? Just I've seen like four people yawn already. I want to know that you're with me. On the count of three, everybody say mature faith. One, two, three. All right. So you know the, the overall series title, but let's talk about this word mature for just a moment. When James uses that word mature in verse four, what does he mean? Who is a mature person? What makes somebody mature? 
few years ago, I was preaching through Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul gets into this idea of spiritual maturity in Ephesians 4. So I shared a few examples with you on that Sunday, and some of these may sound familiar if you happen to remember a sermon from July of 2020, which I imagine you don't. So this is going to be news to you. But when, when I think about maturity, you know, one of the first things I think of is somebody growing in physical stature. When I was 15 years old, our athletic director at our school, he left. He went to a school in Dallas, and then about 15, 16 months later, he came back. So when he left, I was 15 years old. When he came back, I was almost 17. I'd grown a few inches taller. I'd gained about 35 pounds. And the first day that I saw him, I didn't even know if he remembered my name. But when he saw me, he looked at me and he goes, Garner, you got big. And I remember thinking, I was very proud of that moment because I'd been lifting weights and I'd been eating a lot of peanut butter and finally somebody noticed. Like, yes, I, I did get big. And I, I don't think you'd be too impressed now because I've gained even 30 more pounds since then, but it wasn't muscle or this time. But anyways, I think about maturity, okay, is it physical growth? Is it growing into maturity physically? Well, we know people who may be big in stature, but they're still immature emotionally and socially. You grow up and maybe you look older at an early age, but you still got a lot of maturing to do. So is maturity physical growth? Is when, we, when James uses this word mature, when we think of mature, do we think of age? Every year at football season around this time, I think of something that Mike Gundy said in a press conference back in 2007. He was the, the head coach at Oklahoma State University. And in this press conference, 15 years ago, he went on a rant. He was defending his players. And he was like, if you got a problem, you direct it at me. He said, I'm a man. I'm 40. I'm a man. I'm 40. He said it multiple times. And now for 15 straight years, at some point during a game or on Sports Center, sports highlights, they're going to play this clip, making fun of this guy. I'm a man. I'm 40. But I always think about that. What makes you an adult? What makes you mature? Is it turning 21? Is it turning 30? You know, Jesus was you know, started his official public ministry as a rabbi at the age of 30? Or is it what Mike Gundy says, 40? What makes you mature? Is there a certain age? Well, we all know people, and you may be that person, whose chronological age and maturity level doesn't really line up. And then vice versa, you may know some people that are younger, but they're mature. And we often say of younger people, you're mature beyond your years. So what makes somebody mature? Is it physical growth? Is it a certain age or just aging in general? And then could it also be life experience or responsibility? You know, my children are right here. They're first grade, fourth grade. So as a parent, I have the opportunity to watch them mature. And it doesn't happen overnight. But you watch as they go to school and, they, you know, the responsibilities increase of you know, being responsible for their behavior at school or some of their grades, they start to sense that I have a responsibility for my own action. And then you fast forward, somebody turns 16 and maybe they get their driver's license. Well, there's some responsibility with that. You have to be responsible when you're on the road or be responsible when you're taking care of your car. And then, then you get older and you get into college, young adult age, and all of a sudden you got to do your own laundry. You've got to pay attention to what, how much money you're spending, maybe budget a little bit so that you can pay your bills. You see what I mean? Through the different stages of life, 
Life has a way of maturing you, even though some people really postpone the maturing part of life as long as possible. So what is this word mature that's used in James chapter 1 and verse 4? What makes somebody mature? Is it physical growth plus age plus life experience? What does James have in mind when he uses this word mature? We're going to come back to that in just a moment. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself since we're doing a a study of the book in the Bible. Uh, An initial proper step when studying the Bible is to look at uh, who wrote it, who's the author, and who who was it written to? What was the original audience? And what was the main purpose of the letter or the book? If you do that... That helps you, it prevents you in a way from taking it out of context to make it mean just whatever you want it to mean, even though it still applies to us today. So let's look at this. In James chapter 1 and verse 1, he introduces himself. What's the first word in verse 1? Let me make sure you're still with me. Anybody? James. He identifies himself. James. But James who? (laughs) He doesn't say, James, and here's my last name, or James, and here's a description of who I am, he just says, James. Well, okay, we got to go back through the New Testament. Which James could this be? I did this with the first service uh, as well, and they did good. How many apostles did Jesus have? Twelve. How many of the the twelve apostles were named James? Anybody know? Two. All right. Hey, you heard it in the first service, but you already knew that anyways. He had two of his apostles went by the name of James. James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. James, the son of Alphaeus. There's other guys in the New Testament named James who were the father of somebody. But then there's also James, the brother of Jesus. And without getting into the weeds, without getting into all the background, most scholarly people probably assume that James, the brother of Jesus, was the author of this letter, even though that could be debatable, but that's what I'm going with. Is James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this letter. And if that's the case, what do we know about him? Well, you read through the Gospels and you see that Jesus' siblings in Mark chapter 3, they came to try to take him away because they thought that Jesus was out of his mind. In John chapter 7, his brothers kind of mocked him. And John tells us they didn't believe in him. So James would have been a part of that. In the Gospels, as a brother of Jesus, James was a skeptic and a doubter. But then you keep reading the New Testament, you read the book of Acts, and James is the leader in the church in Jerusalem. Early church historian Eusebius said that he referred to James as a bishop in the church in Jerusalem. If you read Galatians chapter 2, the apostle Paul refers to James as a pillar in the church, in the early church in the first century. So how does James go from being a skeptic and a doubter to being a leader in the church? What changed? What made the difference? Well, I think Paul shows us what made the big difference in his letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3-7. through 7. Paul writes, "For I received what I pass on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some, some have fallen asleep. That was at the time Paul wrote this. In verse 7, Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and if you kept reading, He also appears to Paul. Now, I'm pointing out this text because 
The resurrected Jesus appeared to James, specifically, the way that Paul words this. Like, it seems like Jesus made it a point to go see his brother. And I imagine it wasn't like, hey, I wanted to prove you wrong. I wanted to show you that I was right all along. I think he had a special purpose for James. And so he appears to 500, he appears to the apostles, but he appears to his own brother. And I think that that's what made the difference. That's why James went from being a doubter and a skeptic to this great leader in the church in the first century. And writing this letter, if it is this James, because he met the resurrected Christ, the crucified and the risen one. And that captured his heart. That changed the course of his life. So the next part in verse 1, it says, James, okay, we believe that's the brother of Jesus, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I'm interested in what the Bible says. I'm always interested in what the Bible says, but I'm also interested in what the Bible doesn't say. So it's interesting that James doesn't name drop here. You guys know any name droppers? You know, you know what that means? That means like you meet somebody and they want to sound important, so they let you know who they've met or who they know or who they're connected with. Well, James is not one of those name droppers. He doesn't say, James, the brother of Jesus. James, Paul referred to me as a pillar in the early church. He doesn't say, James, the leader in the early church in Jerusalem, the main church, the hub. You know, he doesn't say any of that. He just says, I'm a servant, a fellow servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way he views himself. It actually would have been helpful if he would have said, James, yes, I am the brother of Jesus, so we just kind of are left to figure that all out. But anyways, I admire the fact that he just calls himself a servant. I think that's a sign of maturity, since we're talking about that word mature that he uses in verse 4. He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. We could get into the weeds with this, but he's, uh, it's an Old Testament Jewish language. But in, in Acts chapter 8, the church in Jerusalem, this persecution amps up and, and they're scattered. They leave Jerusalem. A lot of Christians do. They go to Judea, Samaria, and around the world. James and the other apostles stayed in Jerusalem. There's probably a good chance that what James means by the 12 tribes, he's using this language, this Jewish language, but he's referring to Christians everywhere. And that's who he's writing to. So we got the author, his name is James, we think probably the brother of Jesus. He's writing to Christians who are scattered everywhere because of persecution, or at least that's what I believe. And James is referred to as a general epistle. Right, this is the point when I was reviewing last night, and even during the first service, where I thought, okay, this is starting to sound more like a Bible class and less like a sermon. So I pictured some of your faces at this point, and you're looking like what I was picturing last night. So stay with me for just a moment. We're going to go back to this word mature. But James is called a general epistle because it's not written to a specific church or a specific person. Look at Paul's letters. Who does Paul write to? A church in Corinth. A church in Thessalonica. You know, he's writing to a specific church, or Titus, or Timothy. This is a general epistle. James is kind of writing to the church at large. It applies to everyone. Paul's letters apply to everyone, but you know, with this one specifically, it's like, hey, here's how to live a mature faith. Here's how to grow into a mature faith. And that's what James focuses on. So we'll go back to verse 2 through 4, and this will now be the third time we've read this in this service today because we read it in the Scripture reading. My sixth time because I did it in the first service as well. But James starts his letter out with a bang after he, 
After he gives his introduction in verse 1, he says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There's a lot going on in those first three verses. Uh, And we're not going to deal with all of it right now. In fact, if you come back next week, here's a teaser. We'll unpack more of this verse. But for now, I just want to focus on this word mature and, and what James means by that. Now, some English translations use the word perfect. Anybody looking at your own copy of the Bible and it says perfect and complete rather than mature and complete? Anybody? We had some more King James people in the first service. Okay, we got a, a few. It's not just King James, but, but anyway, some English translations use the word perfect. That's a little bit tricky because we know nobody's perfect. We even say things like, nobody's perfect. We may start a sentence by saying, I'm not perfect, but, and then something else comes after that. So perfection is kind of tricky here. Uh, so we'll go back to the Greek and see what the Greek language originally says. And, and the Greek that's used here is this word teleos, which could be defined as to finish a race, like to be brought to its conclusion. I heard one preacher say, in defi- you know, defining this word, is that it's like running a marathon and you complete that marathon. Anybody ever run a marathon? You know, go across the finish line, Carl. <laughs> You're the only one, and Carl and Christian, I, I know you guys have not run a marathon, but someday you will. Um, you can cross the finish line, all that hard work is brought to, to a finish. Well, that's one way of defining the word, but another way of defining teleos is a full-grown adult of age or mature. So that's why I'm going with the translation mature. If you have a Bible that says perfect, that's okay. Just remember, we're going with mature. You could even mark it out, right? Mature if you want. But anyways, that's our focus for this sermon series. So what is a mature faith? Well, when I think about the book of James as a whole, so I've read you know, all five chapters in one sitting, I see that James gives us these snapshots of a mature faith, and in doing so, he also gives us a snapshot of an immature faith. If you take the book of James as a whole. So I'll use this guy as an example. I told, also told the first service this, that I watch, and some people seem like they're zoning out. You pop a picture up, and everybody goes like that because the color changes. So here's my way of recapturing you if I lost you with all the introduction stuff. Uh, during my sabbatical time, I, I did this weird deep dive into like Native American history, and I got into the Comanche tribe, and what I studied was a lot led to this guy right here. This picture was taken in the late 19th century. His name is Quanta Parker. He was the last and greatest war chief of the Comanches. So as I was reading, while well, I was really listening to the book, I had this picture on my phone of the book. And when I met with friends that last week in July, I would start to tell them about the book, and then I would show them the picture. I'd say, you look at that guy in this picture, what do you see? And almost everybody that I asked that to, they would look at the picture for a moment and they would say, that looks like a bad dude. That looks like somebody you wouldn't want to mess with. I mean, he's got this, you can tell, okay, I told him he's a chief and he looks like it. He's kind of looks like he's got a strong physical stature, stout, but this really serious look on his face. And truth is, historically, this guy was a bad dude. He led a lot of raids, but he lived a very interesting life. I won't get into the history of him 
But I started thinking about this picture because I saw it so much and I showed it to people and got their opinion on what they saw when they see this picture. And it made me start thinking, okay, if somebody were to look at a picture of me 150 years from now, what would they see? I said that in the first service and people laughed and I thank you for not laughing at me at that point. I, I don't know why they did, but you think, okay, what will people, if they see you, they see, okay, here's this guy that lived in the 2000s and, you know, who was this guy? What would they see? And then it made me start thinking, if you could take a snapshot, a picture of your own faith, what would that look like? If you could take a picture of not just your outer self, but your inner life, your heart, your thoughts, your intentions, your actions, if somehow you could take a picture of the way that God sees you, what would that reveal? Well, we have something to kind of compare our lives to. And you look at the book of James as a whole, and he gives us a snapshot of an immature faith. So see if maybe you find some of yourself in this. He talks about these trials, which we read about in verse 2 through 4. And the snapshot of an immature faith is somebody who goes through trials, and we all do, and you're impatient, or maybe you just give up on your faith. A snapshot of an immature faith is somebody who's not guided by godly wisdom, and even specifically, if you look at the Scripture reference there, maybe you pray and ask for wisdom, but you doubt that God will actually give it to you. A snapshot of an immature faith is somebody that struggles with temptation, gives in to sin, and looks for someone to blame. Maybe you blame God for the temptation that's come in your life, rather than taking responsibility over your own actions. Snapshot of an immature faith would maybe be someone who takes advantage of the poor, takes advantage of those who are disadvantaged, and shows favoritism towards the rich or towards those of higher status. Snapshot of the immature faith, according to James, is somebody who has no control over your words. This is where it really becomes challenging for a lot of us. And somebody who, who doesn't even attempt to control what they say. Often you may hear people say, sorry I said that, that's just who I am. And as if that's an, a reasonable excuse. Or somebody that uses their words to tear others down or to gossip or to stir up trouble. That's the snapshot of an immature faith. A snapshot of an immature faith could also be called a dead faith, according to James. Because you say you believe, but so do the demons. But... True faith is lived out. And then a snapshot of an immature faith is somebody who might just be described as worldly, a friend of the world rather than a friend of God. Now on the flip side, you also have a snapshot of a mature faith in the entire book of James. Uh, you could reverse some of these around. You look at the trials that we go through, and what James tells us is that we endure those trials because God is doing something in us through the trials. He's growing us into spiritual maturity. So we embrace that challenge. A snapshot of a mature faith is somebody who asks God for wisdom and actually believes that God will give you wisdom. Not just mentally, but give you wisdom to apply it to everyday various life situations. A snapshot of a mature faith is somebody who doesn't seek to blame God or anyone else, but owns up to your own sin and your own decisions that you've made. A snapshot of a mature faith is somebody who is generous, towards those who are poor or you know, maybe a disadvantage, whatever you would want to describe there, or somebody who doesn't show favoritism towards someone just because they have a higher status. 
Snapshot of a mature faith is somebody who actually tries to control their speech. James says in verse 19 of chapter 1, we should all be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. A mature faith is somebody who does that, slow, quick to listen, slow to speak, somebody who uses their words to build others up, to be a peacemaker, not somebody who causes conflict and strife. Snapshot of a mature faith is somebody who does have a living faith because not only do they say they believe in God, but it's backed up by their actions and by their love. In a snapshot of mature faith, well, that person could be described as a godly person rather than a friend of the world. Read the whole book of James and you'll get these snapshots. I put scripture references up there if you want to read through it at some point. So what would a snapshot of my faith or your faith reveal? Well, you look at that, according to James, and if I'm being confessional and being honest, I'm probably a mixture of both. I'm definitely not going to say, yeah, I would fit into the mature category. Maybe in some areas I have matured through time, but there's still plenty of areas where immaturity might describe me. So because of that, I thank God for His grace that He's given us. As we get ready to study this book of James, where nobody's perfect, like I mentioned earlier, but we do want to become mature. That's the goal, according to James, is to live into, grow into this mature faith. And we're going to talk over the next few months about what that looks like lived out in your own lives. As a church, we say we want to make mature and multiply faithful followers of Jesus. Well, we're really going to hone in on that mature part because James forces us to do that. And the biggest change in James's life, as I mentioned earlier, is that he met not just the crucified Lord, but the resurrected Lord. And when James met Jesus, that changed everything for him. And the same is true for us today. If we've met the crucified and risen Lord, that should change everything. That should give us that desire to grow into this mature faith. If we can help you do that today, uh, any way that we can help you, we have some shepherds here available to you. I'm available to talk with you and pray with you. I want to invite you to stand back up. Joe David's going to come back up here. We're going to sing a few more songs. Please respond to the invitation if you need to. Let's stand and sing. Would you live for Jesus and be always pure and good? Would you walk?